Um, dear Lord, I just want to say just thank you for this beautiful morning and that we're all able to gather, gather here and praise your name. And it's just an amazing thing that we're doing, Lord. And it just, it's, it's amazing. Like, I can't even describe it. You know, your indescribable beauty and power, like driving here on my way to church, just noticing the mountains and the sun and everything is just, it left me speechless, Lord. Um, so we just thank you for letting us be able to gather here, Lord, and um, just thank you for letting the youth group here be able to go out and, you know, preach and, you know, just serve the rest of the church, Lord. Um, so we just thank you so much, Lord, and we give everything to you this week, Lord, and in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we'll be in Luke seven thirty-six through 50 if you want to open your Bibles. I'm not sure if we're doing the Skybull like we do in youth group, but... Open your Bibles, um, and I'll be reading that today. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of, a, of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered it. Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, she said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has been saved. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Well, welcome to our typical Sunday night youth service. (laughs) I think the only thing I'd add is we might play a uh, you know a little five minute upfront game, and but otherwise, hey, welcome. Love that you were a part of that. Uh, Students, thank you for leading us in worship this morning. (laughs) It's, you know, it's easy, uh, especially, uh, I think, today, where we look at the world and we see a digression of morality. We see see every bad news that we can possibly imagine a lot of times has to do with every younger generation. And what I love is that I, along with several of the youth leaders, uh, we get to see God reclaiming the future generations. And it's a beautiful thing. And, uh, and not just reclaiming them to lead a, a service at church, but, uh, but he's reclaiming them to lead their peers to Christ, to follow the Lord in their own life, to make a difference. 
And uh, so this is my shameless plug. You know, if you, if, if you need a place to serve and you're interested in discipling and making a difference in this world, the youth ministry is a great place to do that. And I would love to talk to you more about that. So, shameless plug. <laughs> uh, this, this morning I'm going to be speaking on the subject of forgiveness. And we've been speaking on spiritual disciplines, spiritual fitness. And, and so this is practicing forgiveness in the realm of spiritual discipline. Uh, but before I get to that, I want to I give my own definition of what the spiritual disciplines are and why you would participate with such a thing. And so as I understand the spiritual disciplines, and this is, I, I had to wrestle with this. Ironically, I had a paper due this week um, for my seminary degree that says, hey, what are spiritual disciplines? And so this just lined up really nicely. And so, and so this is how I understand and how I try to make sense of, of what a spiritual discipline is. And so here's my definition. Spiritual disciplines are practices taught and modeled in the Bible. All right? I'm going to highlight that. Practices that are taught and modeled in the Bible. Uh, Which means, though we love fishing, we love hunting, we love baseball, working out, hiking, whatever your recreational item is, those things are all good. Uh, But unless you have combined those things with prayer, meditation on the word, um, you name it, uh, they are just activities that are refreshing. Um, but they are not activities that will bring you on their own closer to the Lord. Otherwise, uh, if, if, you, if, you, you know, if you say, hey, my spiritual discipline is fishing, and you go out there and you catch that big fish, that big salmon, if that's confirmation that the Lord loves you, okay, we're doing it wrong, okay? <laughs> However, if you are out fishing and you're praising the Lord and you're meditating on the beauty of his word and what you see in creation, man, that is absolutely uh, something that will be life-giving and, and increase your love and communion with the Lord. So spiritual disciplines are practices taught and modeled in the Bible that simultaneously, so I would say these next two things work together with each other, simultaneously cultivates the relationship between believers and God, that is, increases communion, increases intimacy with you and your Creator, and spiritually forms the believer into the likeness of Christ. Meaning that in your communion with God, through the spiritual disciplines, God is also transforming you to be in the likeness of Christ. Now this makes sense because who is God in perfect communion with? Himself, with Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. God who exists in perfect communion uh, and unity then invites us into that. So we are, let me just say that one more time. Spiritual disciplines are practices taught and modeled in the Bible that simultaneously cultivates the relationship between believers and God and spiritually forms the believer into the likeness of Christ. So why then should we pursue the spiritual disciplines? Since Adam and Eve's fall, humanity's natural state has been one of rebellion, one of rebellion against God himself. As we know, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God offers forgiveness. He offers salvation and even transformation. The relationship with God that was broken by human sin has now been reconciled through Jesus. However, Followers of Jesus still inhabit bodies affected by sin. We all know this way too well. We live in a world of sin. 
And we find ourselves in a spiritual battle that seeks to keep communion with God out of reach. Let's think about that. We live in a world, well, let's step back for, for one, number one, our own sinful selves are working against ourselves. The world of sin is working against us, and we're also in a spiritual battle with Satan, who seeks to keep our communion with God out of reach. So Christian spiritual formation, that is the practices, the spiritual disciplines, becomes the counteracting force in which believers draw near to God through the spiritual disciplines. Are we on the same page there? Excellent. Through the spiritual disciplines, then, we are invited to commune with the Lord. I want you to grasp that. Too often we look at spiritual disciplines, we look at reading the Bible, prayer, fasting, tithing. We look at it simply as, well, I'm a Christian, so I must do these things. Or we look at it as behavior management. I must do these things to become a better person. What I want to tell you is that God is giving you an invitation, a relational invitation, where he says, hey, when you pursue me in these things... I meet with you there. You can feel my love. You can commune with me. And in fact, I think one of our biggest motivations then to pursue the spiritual disciplines is just that, to commune with our Creator, to have that relationship. It is through the spiritual disciplines that where our head knowledge of God becomes heart knowledge. It's where our affections for Him grow and where we begin to understand more about his affections for us. Timothy Keller, in his book called Prayer, and if you have not read this book, um, read it. It's it's fantastic. Um, He says this, It is possible for Christians to live their lives with a high degree of phoniness, hollowness, and inauthenticity. The reason is because they have failed to move that truth into their hearts, and therefore it has not actually changed who they are and how they live. So I would invite you today, this morning, to consider how you would currently describe your communion with God. How might you pursue the spiritual disciplines? Whether through reading of the Word, like we were exhorted last week, which is phenomenal, through prayer, through fasting, through giving, even forgiveness, so that you would live with the joy that comes forth with, of being in communion with your God. So with that said, let's get to our passage this morning. We're going to be in Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. I'm going to read this again, but I'm going to offer some comments as we go. Luke 7, starting verses 36. Says this. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is, asked Jesus, to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And if you're unaware of this, um, first century Judaism uh, or just first century world, if you were invited into a banquet, we think of banquets as big tables, big chairs, you show up, you sit down. Uh, But this would have been a shorter table, actually a very intimate setting uh, where when you would come to 
the table to eat at this banquet, uh, you would in fact be reclining at the table. Your feet towards uh, the backside uh, or facing away from the table. And so this is a banquet that Jesus has been invited to. Verse 37 continues. It says, And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that she, he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, can you imagine this scenario? Uh, first, uh, what is also different about first century uh, living is that they lived their lives out in the open more. Meaning when the banquet showed up, all were invited, not necessarily to the table, but they could certainly stand on the outside of the room and listen in to what was going on. But the text is very clear. Who was this woman who was showing up? A sinner. She's not given a name. She's just known as a sinner, a woman of the city. And up to this point, we're unaware of any interaction she has with Jesus, but it's clear to me that she does have interaction with Jesus. Because upon coming in, she brings this alabaster flask of ointment, something expensive, worth a year's worth of wages. And standing behind him, she's weeping. She begins to wet his feet. That's Jesus' feet with her tears. She lets her hair down and uses it as a washcloth and begins to kiss his feet. No, more than likely the ointment was meant for his head. She can't get there. She's not allowed there. And so she simply completely undone emotionally at the feet of Jesus, it's hard to imagine. The demeanor of this woman is one of complete worship to Jesus. Jesus had clearly done something in this woman's life where she is coming completely undone, completely in service, and going over the top with how she's going to treat him. What's fascinating here as well is Jesus accepts it. Doesn't rebuke the woman. Doesn't say, hey, stop washing my feet. But instead we see others have thoughts on what is going on. And so verse 39 continues. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so he literally said this out loud. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. It's the second time we hear this in this verse. Again, no name. We, we can only think of what it must mean that she was a sinner. There's lots of Scholars who, you know, say, well, maybe she was a prostitute. This text doesn't say. But what is known is that everybody recognizes her as she is a sinner. And Jesus, 
Verse 40, answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. So Jesus, answering Simon, decides to tell him, in typical Jesus fashion, a story. And this is what he says. Verse 41, he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. He poses this question, Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He said to him, You have judged rightly. Jesus sets up this comparison between somebody who's been forgiven much and someone who has been forgiven little and how they respond to those scenarios. And so verse 44, Jesus then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. It's important to recognize here Jesus is not currently forgiving her because she has done this. What Jesus is saying is she is displaying her love for Jesus because Jesus has already forgiven her. Some point before this dinner, this woman meets Jesus, as so many others did in the scriptures. And I don't know if this was an instance where Jesus also tells her of her sins but tells her, you're forgiven. She's set free. And she hears Jesus, oh, he's back in town. He's at a dinner. Here's my opportunity to go back and thank him. Completely undone. And of course, everyone else around the table watching this begin to question, begin getting a little self-righteous. Says 40 to 49, then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this? Who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus' story sets up the comparison between the woman and the Pharisee. Much like the man who had been forgiven much and therefore showed more love. The woman understood the forgiveness she had and therefore gratefully worshipped Jesus. The Pharisee, however, though he hosted Jesus for a fine dinner, he fell wholly short of a grateful heart and worship to Christ. It's important to understand that this Pharisee and, 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 and in this dinner that he holds for Jesus, he's under no ethical, moral uh, standard of the day to do these things for him, for Jesus. He was not required to wash his feet when he walked in. He was not required to put ointment on his, or oil on his head. What this woman was doing was not something in lack of what the Pharisee was doing. This woman was going wholly beyond in worship. 
And this is where the Pharisee fell short. This is a beautiful story of a sinful woman who receives forgiveness and then responds in a deep love and adoration for Christ. In fact, I don't know about your Bible. My Bible says, on the, on the top of the headline, it says, a, uh, how does it read? a sinful woman forgiven. I think that should be rewritten. It should simply say a forgiven woman. We'll get more into that. But I believe this story sets us up for this discussion on forgiveness and helps us reflect on at least these two things. The first is this. How sinful depraved and lost we are without Christ. How sinful, depraved, and lost we are without Christ. And the second thing is this. How amazing is his love that God would send his son to take the penalty for our sins and forgive us and wipe our debt clean. This is why I believe the story is so important as to why it pertains to our forgiveness of others. Because when we meditate on our own sinfulness and God's mercy and forgiveness through Christ, we are brought to a state of thanksgiving, a state of gratefulness, a state of being undone. And without those things, I believe you will forgive less because you will love less. When we meditate on those things, we will forgive more because we understand that the person who has harmed us has done no more than what we have already done to the Lord. So this brings me to my first point this morning. We forgive because we are forgiven. We forgive because we are forgiven. If you would turn to Ephesians 2 with me. We're going to be a bit all over the place. I have to admit, if you want to look up things about forgiveness in the Bible, it's all over the place. This is a, this is a book that preaches forgiveness. So we're going to be in a couple different places. I want to ask the question, how much are we forgiven? So Ephesians 2. Probably a very common verse you would know, but let's just meditate on it for a minute. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. You hear that? Personalize that. We, we were dead in our trespasses. Let me ask you, what trespasses and sins would that have been of true of you? It says, we followed the ways of the world. How have you done that? It even gets more direct. It says that not only were we following the ways of the world, but according to the ruler and the power of the air and of the spirit. Who is that? That is Satan. How have we followed Satan? How have we lived to gratify the cravings of our flesh? 
By our nature alone, we were deserving of wrath. By our nature alone, this is who we are. If the story of the woman was rewritten with you and I in it, we might well not be called the the sinner. We might be called the child of wrath. And I ask you, when you think about those things and really dwell and meditate on that, where is there room for pride? Where is there room for arrogance? Where is there room to think anything about yourself? Does this not bring you to a place of humility? In fact, we are the debtor in the story who owes a large debt that we cannot pay. But aren't you glad it doesn't stop there? Verse 4, but God, because of his great love, we're in, see, we're debtors, we owe, we have nothing. But because of his great love that he has had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raises us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace. What a dichotomy between us debtors and God's immeasurable riches that he lavishes on us. We need to meditate on this often. I know I need to do this. If I don't lose, if I, if, if I don't meditate on this, I lose perspective. I think of myself more highly than I ought, and I'll act as if God owes me something. I'll be far more unloving to those around me, and yes, as it pertains to our talk this morning, I'll be far less to forgive. But Paul doesn't stop here in this meditation. He then encourages the church to continue to meditate. So we look at Ephesians 3, verse 18. He has this prayer. Start in verse 16 there, 316. He says, I pray that he may grant you, that's God grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend. Underline that. May be able to comprehend, because this is going to sound impossible. But he's praying that we are able to comprehend this. With all the saints, what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love? I'll be honest, when you read that verse, what's our answer? He's God, it's infinite. We, we, can't, we can't put words to that. We can't measure that. And yet Paul says, hey, I'm praying that you can comprehend this. Is Paul praying for a pipe dream? I don't think so. I think he is actually calling us to meditate and to ask that question, well, what is the depth of God's love? Put words to it. What is the length of it? What is the height? The best way you can dwell on that and think about that, how would you answer that question. And you see, I think in the moment, this is what it means to meditate on the gospel. We should do this often.
One of the reasons why I believe we should be doing this often is because when we observe and bring the knowledge of God's love, the head knowledge, back to the heart level, we in return cultivate and express love back. 1 John 4.19 says this, We love because he first loved us. We know out of that love, we then pursue and obey the Lord. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's interesting how obeying the Lord is tied with loving him. It's interesting then to me that further along in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, after Paul meditates on who we are before Christ and the riches of God's mercy and love shown to us through Jesus, then says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We forgive because we are forgiven. Our forgiveness of others is motivated out of the love and obedience for the Lord. And it's made possible because he loved us first. He forgave us first. Which brings me to my second point. We forgive because it proclaims the truth and the (laughs) efficacy of the gospel. I should have changed that word. I knew I was going to mess it up. We forgive because it proclaims the truth and the power of the gospel. How's that? God is a God of forgiveness. What I love is when he calls us, he redeems us, he forgives us. Calls us to be ambassadors. We represent him to the world. We say this, we should be known by our love as Christians. We should be known by our mercy. We should be known by our kindness. We should be known by our generosity. We should be known by our forgiveness. Because we know God by his love, his mercy, his kindness, his generosity, and forgiveness towards us. We are a forgiven people, and therefore it is only right that we also forgive. How dare, how, how dare we misrepresent, misrepresent Christ to the world? Think for a moment of the, the amazing stories of Christian forgiveness you hear on display to the world. They're stories that when you hear them, the world goes, what? Like, really? I've spoken of her before, but she's a great example. Corey Ten Boom. She's a Holocaust survivor. And there's a story where after the war, she's traveling around to different churches and she's speaking on forgiveness. And at one of the churches, she meets a guard who was at the concentration camp in which her sister Betsy had died. And he comes to her saying that he has become a Christian. And he's so thankful of the Lord's forgiveness in his life. But he stretches his arm out to her and asks her, will you forgive me? Listen, listen to the account. She writes this. She says, and I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. 
for I had to do it. I knew that the message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will you, your Father in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and former prisoner. And I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You see, forgiveness like this, the freedom to forgive like this, only comes from the forgiveness that one receives in the gospel of Jesus. To forgive, then, is an act that is in line with being forgiven. It is, a, it is an act in line with the gospel itself. But to not forgive is to act contrary to the gospel, contrary to the reality of which you now live in before your father. Go ahead and turn with me to Matthew 18. Jesus tells a parable to Peter. It's the typical, Peter has asked Jesus, well, how many times do I need to forgive? You know, uh, (laughs) a question, if we're honest, we have asked ourselves, how many times am I going to forgive that person? Matthew 18 Verse 21 says, Then Peter approached him, that's Jesus, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. Now that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started to choke him, and said, Pay with, pay me what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have the mercy have that mercy on your fellow servant as I had had him mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgive his brother or sister from your heart. <clears throat> 
It's pretty intense. I'm uh, struggled at this point because Barna Research Group they says that one in four Christians, one in four even those gathered today, struggle with unforgiveness. You can understand why. This is a heart issue. Somebody has hurt you. So I don't want to wave the bat of forgive because I understand that you're already hurting. But yet I want you to consider the truth of the gospel and the forgiveness we have in Christ. I ask you, if you are harboring unforgiveness in your heart, I will ask you to repent and forgive. Because it is for your freedom and your joy that you do so. And this leads me to my last point. We forgive because it takes off the weight of injustice that we were never meant to carry. We forgive because it takes off the weight and injustice, the weight of injustice we were never meant to carry. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, become, do not be overcome by evil, but be overcome evil with good. We are not made to carry each other's debts. We all know too well that debt incurs interest. Normally, that interest is paid by the person who owes the debt. This is not the case with unforgiveness. That is not how it works. The interest that builds over time only costs you. Unforgiveness works as a cancer in your life, and it will steal your joy. Think through for a moment the effects of unforgiveness in your families. Maybe there's a distant relative. Maybe there's a brother or sister, maybe even a child. And all unforgiveness does is cause further separation, further division, further heartache. It doesn't redeem. If that unforgiveness is on your part, remember that the debt that Christ paid on your behalf, a debt far beyond what is owed you, and forgive those people in your life. I was told a story earlier this week of a woman who would tell everyone, you know, I'll never forget. You do something to me, I'll never forget it. And can you imagine the weight that someone would carry of all the injustices ever done to them over the course of a lifetime? Can you imagine how careful a person must be in public? What if that person shows up? I see him in the supermarket. Avoid eye contact. I believe some of you can't imagine that. Because you're struggling with that now. I have an aunt back in Missouri. She just published a book detailing her life. It's called uh, Mended Heart. Is that right? I should know this, yeah. 
details a, an incredible life of abuse for growing up as a child. Um, serious abuse. Uh, abuse which led to her sisters and her mother living in hiding for well over a decade. But ultimately, this book is about how God brought her to a place of forgiving those who hurt her most deeply and the resulting freedom that came after. She writes this in her book. Forgiveness is an area I've spent many hours studying and praying on because I've had a lot of bitterness and resentments from the past. I've learned the hard way that refusing to forgive gives you a false sense of power and only leads to destruction. Revenge is never sweet. It's a bitter thief that steals your peace and joy. But there's a better way. Learning to live a lifestyle of forgiveness releases burdens and brings lasting freedoms to our hearts. It's where we find peace. I recall reading a little story that went something like this. A little boy was sitting on the park bench in obvious pain. A man walked up to the little boy and said, Son, may I ask if you are okay? You seem uncomfortable. The boy replied, I am sitting on a bumblebee. The man asked, why don't you just get up if you are sitting on a bumblebee? The boy replied, because I am hurting him way more than he is hurting me. (laughs) Isn't this what many of us do with unforgiveness? We hold on to it and let it it eat us up inside, thinking it it will hurt our offender more than it will hurt us. I would encourage you now, forgive. Drop the weight. Release the debt. You serve a sovereign God who has ensured that justice was satisfied. It was satisfied through his son dying on the cross. Bringing this around full circle, I want to emphasize that I believe we will only do this when we allow the forgiveness that God has given us to go from head knowledge to heart knowledge. We do this by reflecting on God's great love for us despite our great sin. Not just once, not twice, not once a week, daily. Thinking back about the sinful woman washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and her hair, I can't help think that we act more like a Pharisee when we harbor unforgiveness. There isn't a tender brokenness on display, but rather a self righteous attitude. Look what this sinner has done to me. But rather, I want to know and understand God's forgiveness in my life like the woman who cleans Jesus' feet with her tears and her hair so that I'm completely undone. That I would then seek to emulate my Savior to show the world that there is indeed a great forgiveness for them too. like to share a story. There was a man who uh, passed away not too long ago from this church, the late John MacArthur. He uh, served as a pastor at another church and then served as an elder. I'm not sure how long here, many years. He was known for his public prayers, which were amazing. Known as a man of just a tender heart for the Lord, a man who loved people. And I'll never forget, it was my first year here, six years ago, came to an elder meeting, 
and we would uh, meet twice, twice a month, but on one of those weeks we would take communion together to start the service or, or start our meeting. Something we had done many times, much like we do every Sunday morning. And so as you expect, John gets the bread, gets the cup, and he leads a devotional, a devotional that would be known to you, focusing on the death of Christ, forgiveness that we have for our sins, the love of God. Yet the difference was as he taught this, he was in tears. And I'll never forget, because I watched this man in tears give the story that we hear every month, every week. And I remember praying to the Lord at that moment, God, would you do something in my heart where I love you as much as this man does? I don't know much about John's life. I don't know how sinful he was. What I do know, though, is that he was a man who reflected on that. He reflected on his great God, his great forgiveness that he had, and he celebrated that. He understood his own depravity, his own wicked heart. He understood the amazing forgiveness, the amazing love and mercy that our Savior demonstrated on the cross for us. So I'd ask you now too, especially if you're struggling with unforgiveness, would you take a moment, reflect. Reflect on who you are before the Lord. But we don't, we don't sit there. We don't wallow in our sin. We have this great verse that says, but God. It was offered us forgiveness and God's rich, richness and mercy. But maybe this will be a time of confession for you. Maybe it'll be a time of repentance. Maybe it very well may be a time where the Lord is bringing somebody to, into mind who you need to forgive. Let's just take a moment, and then I will lead us together. Lord God, on this issue of forgiveness, Lord, we are so thankful for the forgiveness you've given us. Lord, I pray that that forgiveness is known in such a way, Lord, that we are unafraid to forgive others. Lord, we serve you, a sovereign God, a God who knows injustice, for you gave your son up for it. But Lord, that we can trust you in all those areas in our life, Lord, that you'd bring healing and redemption, Lord, that you would heal families, Lord, that you would heal friendships, Lord, all because of an act of faith, Lord, to forgive and walk in obedience to you. Lord, we give you thanks. 
Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.